Hello everyone, this is Deborah Richardson and today I am putting the AP in Happy where accounts payable teams are empowered to protect the vendor master file from fraud. This podcast will give a voice to accounts payable team members by talking about the growing reality of cyber attacks in their world and which vendor setup and vendor management techniques they can apply to protect the vendor master file from fraud. If you are looking for vendor process training for you or your entire vendor team, head over to my site at DeborahRRichardson.com and click on the Vendor Team Training Solved button to learn more about what is included in the monthly or annual plan and also to download a 2021 training schedule. Get the training that you and your team needs to avoid payment fraud, duplicate vendors, compliance fines, and more. Are you getting ready for the 1099 and 1042 forms distribution to your vendors and the related IRS tax filing? Uh, Are you dreading that because you know your vendor master file is in need of some help? What steps should you take to clean your vendor master file? Keep listening. So welcome to episode 161. It's time to clean your vendor master file updated for 2021. Now, when I was an accounts payable manager uh, responsible for over 140,000 active vendor records across five to seven ERPs, depending on what time or when you ask, because we had some lift and shifts with acquisitions, that always happens. And so you end up uh, incorporating yet another new accounting system or ERP into the mix. But anyway, I had 140,000 plus vendors, active vendors records across five to seven ERPs and October, November-ish was go time. Um, Actually, go time started in September, October-ish, depending on when the IRS issued their publication 1220. And at that point, we use publication 1220 to identify what changes needed to be made to the ERPs to comply with that year's 1099 miscellaneous form at that time, now add in the 1099 NEC form. Um, but we, we check that to verify and make sure we incorporated any changes to the forms because we did have, um, one of our systems, the form IRS 1099 miscellaneous form, again, at that time was embedded in one of our ERPs out of the five to seven, only one had the form embedded and it was a substitute form. So we always had to check um, and make sure there were no format changes. But then we also had to check um, fire system updates, uh, any updates to the file that we needed to upload for the tax filing. Uh, but by December, all the system updates and the testing was done and really reality began to set in because thanks IRS, almost 25,000 of the forms that we sent out of the 1099 miscellaneous forms that we sent out needed to be accurately generated and distributed to the reportable vendors by January 31st. And yes, we, like most of you, 
probably did and are still doing distributed all of the 1099 missed forms, um, not just box seven um, by January 31st. It was just easier. Now it may be a little bit easier for you because uh, the non-employee compensation, which is what you need to have out by January 31st, is now on a separate form, that 1099-NEC. So not sure what you guys are doing out there with the 1099-MISC form now that it doesn't include the non-employee compensation. Um, Would love to hear from you if you want to drop a comment in any of the podcast platforms or just send me an email at Deborah at DeborahRRichardson.com and just tell me what you're doing with your 1099 MISC forms now. And I know the 1099-NEC form, the new form that you use for the first time in January 2021 for tax year uh, 2020, you may still be tweaking that process, uh, especially since you could have uh, multiple vendors that have, uh, that could qualify for a spend or, uh, reportable payments on both the 1099 uh, MISC and the 1099 NEC. So I'd love to hear what you're doing um, with that if you're still filing all of your 1099 uh, applicable forms, which for AP is pretty much the miscellaneous or MISC and the uh, NEC. The same was also true for state reporting since for the past few years, they have been making changes to filing requirements, uh, due dates, and their participation in the combined state and federal 1099 filing program. Every year, we always had to check um, for the applicable states that our vendors were in that uh, where they are, were reportable to see if any changes were made. And quite often each year, there was at least a couple of states or maybe at least one that had a change that we had to put into place. And both the federal and state reporting requires accurate vendor master file data and really in two different areas. One is the legal name and tax ID combination because you want to avoid IRS penalties for correction filings and subsequent team member non-value added work when they have to issue or follow the B notice process to vendors. And that B notice process comes as a result of the IRS uh, sending you a notification in the form of the CP. Uh, 2100 and the CP2100 or the CP2100A. And so you get that and now you have to go through this process of getting accurate information from your vendors. It's called the B notice process. And I do have an episode podcast episode 139. And on that podcast episode, I had a guest, Shakari Tucker, and she talked all about the IRS notification process and the B notice process and gave quite a few tips on how you can avoid having to even go through that process in the future. So again, that's a podcast episode 139. So check that out. All right, so that was the first thing you need to make sure you have accurate vendor master data for. The second one is addresses because you want to reduce the potential for return 1099 MISC or 1099 NEC forms because that also causes additional manual work in the form of 
uh, rework where you have to log the fact that you received this 1099 back. And then you have to do your research, identifying the correct address for your vendor and then resending that out. All of that can be avoided if you uh, check your addresses or validate your addresses before you send them out. So those are at least two reasons why you need to clean your vendor master file, especially this time of year. Now, I will have uh, a link to the accompany blog post. And in that blog post, I'll have a link to the IRS filing deadlines and their penalty rates. And you might need that if you want to convince your leadership that it's uh, you need to spend the manual time. And I know it's a manual process to clean your vendor master file. Or if you want to get some help to outsource that piece, I do have a five-day vendor master file cleanup, and that will just give you a head start. You'll give me vendor data, and I'll give you back a file with recommendations for vendors that should be inactivated, recommendations for surviving vendors, uh, because I do also check for duplicate vendors, and then also uh, the results of validations, and that does include include um, the uh, legal name and tax ID combination against IRS records, as well as address, not just format and standardization, but I will tell you uh, the status of that address, whether it can be mailed or delivered. Um, So I'll tell you whether it's vacant, whether it's inactive or a PO box only, which could be an indicator of fraud if you don't also have a physical address on file for the vendors. So I'll have a link for the five-day vendor master file cleanup in the show notes. And then um, I also have, when you get over to that page, I'll have a link if you'd like to, if you'd like a quote within 24 hours, usually it doesn't take longer than that. And all I need is the type of accounting system or ERP you have along with the number of uh, vendors. All right, so let's jump into uh, the focus of today's uh, episode, which is cleaning the vendor master file. And hopefully the pandemic and the increased fraud that it brought, as well as the increased focus um, that business email compromise has given to the vendor setup and maintenance process, um, your vendor process now includes, hopefully again, more internal controls and best practices to avoid bad vendor data. But what if you're not sure that your team has followed the internal controls and best practices that you put into place all year? What if your vendors forgot to inform you that they moved or that they were acquired, or maybe they uh, didn't tell you that they changed your name, but kept their same tax ID? What if you inherited your vendor master file and you don't know what was required, what validations were done, or what conventions were used to onboard the vendors? With all of that, how confident are you that your vendor master file is clean? So it's go time. Now, here are eight steps towards a clean vendor master file that I recommend be done monthly, quarterly, semi-annually, or at the very least annually, and definitely before your tax filings. Now, step one is to inactivate vendor records with no 
PO, invoice, or payment activity. And you could even um, look at the last modified date of your vendor record because, again, the whole point is to update your information, your vendor's information. And if they've already done that, then you can include that activity as well. Now, what does this do? It reduces the volume or vendors in your vendor master file for all of the remaining seven steps. Now, uh, inactivity can be based on 15, 18, or 24 months, whatever works for your company. Now, step two is the IRS 10 match, uh, because you do want to confirm that the legal name and tax identification number still match, which will avoid any IRS corrections that you may have to file or getting those IRS uh, notifications that the legal name and tax ID did not match prompting that be notice process. Now, step three is address status and standardization. So this ensures that mail 1099 forms will not be delayed or returned due to incorrect entries or vacant or inactive address status. Now, step four is to validate banking details. Now, I know this doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the IRS tax filing, but since banks are acquired and they merge all the time, you do want to verify that the routing number, which you can look up for free, um, is still valid. And I, the last one that I am aware of is uh, BB&T and SunTrust merged uh, or one acquired the other. And they are now uh Uh, combined to a new name, which is Truist. So if you think of all of the vendors, and this was back in December, 2019, um, and maybe you've updated them, but maybe not. And if you think about all those BB&T routing numbers or SunTrust routing numbers that might be in your vendor master file, it could be time to go ahead and, uh, and update those. Because as you are probably aware, If you make payments, uh, electronic payments or ACH payments to vendors and you use an old routing number, um, the, your bank or the vendor's bank will go ahead and change that, but they're only going to change that for the first few times. You have to have a process in place for when they notify you of that notice of change or knock is what we used to call it. You need to go ahead and uh, make that update in your vendor master file or you're going to get fines. And if um, I know I had to have someone or at least a half a person that was dedicated to grabbing those every day. But if they didn't do it and you're continuing to send payments, then you could uh, be uh, uh, in line or have the potential for a NACHA uh, violation. So make sure you're always checking those routing numbers and it's free to check. And if you want some resources, both free and paid um, to verify your vendor's banking, you can check out episode 103. And that episode is called free and paid resources to validate vendor banking uh, details. So check that out. I'll give you some resources. But like I said, the routing numbers, those are free to check. And then if you have a paid resource, and again, you can check out that uh, episode to see what those resources are. But if you have a resource to validate the bank account, 
account holder's name matches your vendor's legal name and maybe the tax ID used to open the bank account, then you need to include that as well. And again, check out episode 103 that will talk about free and paid resources to validate vendor banking details. Now, step five is to validate against the OFAC, uh, SDN, and other watch lists because you do want to confirm that existing vendors have not been added to any watch list um, post-vendor setup or since the last time you verified um, the vendor. And sometimes you will do that when the vendor record has been modified. When they submit a change, you'll go ahead and check them against the watch list again, especially if you're using uh, 10check.com because whenever you do the uh, IRS 10 match, it automatically includes the uh, watch list because you have to put the vendor's legal name in and the vendor legal name triggers the watch list uh, validation. So I do recommend that this be done monthly, which is one of the reasons why I recommend the whole process is done monthly so that you can keep up with the watch list validations. Unless of course you have a system where you have continuous monitoring. Maybe you have a vendor portal where it's included. Maybe you have a risk management tool where that's included. But if not, make sure that you do this piece at least monthly and hopefully as part of this eight-step process. All right. So step six is to validate uh, tax registration numbers for international vendors. So you want to do things like confirm the VAT number is still active for vendors in the UK, um, the business number uh, for vendors in Canada, and other applicable tax registration numbers for vendors in other countries. You want to verify that they are valid. Uh, In some cases, they have verification resources where you can tie it to the vendor's legal name. In other situations, maybe you can only validate the format, um, but you do need to validate whatever tax registration number you have on uh, international vendors. And maybe it's not even a tax registration number. Maybe it's just a business uh, registration number uh, or an identity number for individuals that are not in the U.S., you do need to verify that uh, because it's not just about the IRS 10 match and the IRS tax identification number. All countries or many countries have um, unique registration numbers for uh, individuals as well as for companies and or organizations. And you want to verify those if you have them on file. Now, While these may not be needed for the IRS 1042 forms, which I haven't mentioned, but those need to be sent now as well. So include both your U.S. and your international vendors in this process. Um, But while they may not be needed for the IRS 1090 or 1042 forms and uh, that distribution and filing, It could help with other groups in your company, um, such as the tax teams that may need to report on taxes paid um, so that they can reclaim them. I know that's the uh, situation with that. Also with uh, GST, there's all sorts of reporting around it and uh, the vendor record 
is where we house those numbers. So we do want to verify that they are valid. Now, I do have a resource called the Global Vendor Registration Numbers Reference List, and it has the registration numbers that are available for 100 plus countries. And so you may have some vendors in your vendor master file from uh countries outside of the U.S., and you could be collecting uh, those tax registration or registration numbers for your vendors in your vendor master file. So um, I'll put a link to that. It'll be in the blog post and a link to the blog post will be in the show notes. So make sure you check that out. If you have international vendors and you do not have a lot of uh, registration numbers or tax numbers uh, recorded for them. This reference will show you what uh, registration numbers are available um, based on your vendor's country, whether they are individual, whether they are a company, and also will give you a link to the validation resource, or if no link is available um, for validation, it'll give you a link to more information and also the format, the proper format of that, uh, of that particular number, which could come in handy because as you probably already know, when you receive that W-8, the vendors don't always know what numbers they are expected to put where, and you could get a number in um, one of those fields and not know what that number is because you don't know the format of the particular number um, for their country. So it could be helpful for that as well. All right, so step number seven is to validate other regulatory parties. Now, this is unique to your company. It is based on your company's industry and it could include things like uh, Dun and Bradstreet. Uh, maybe you're checking hierarchy. Uh, maybe you're verifying uh, diversity. It could be the Office of Inspector General or OIG if you are a healthcare organization or receive federal funds. Um, you could be checking against that exclusion list or the exclusion list for the system of award management or SAM if you receive federal funds. So any other validation or could even be the collection of documents. I know a lot of you out there will collect um, insurance certificates. So you want to make step seven, anything else that I haven't talked about um, validation or collection of any other steps. Include them now in step seven. Now, step eight, you may think, great, we are at step eight. This is the last step, but really it is the longest step. This is where you analyze your vendor records. You look at your vendor records, you research any duplicate vendors because you do want to identify your surviving vendor. You want to look at those vendors that Um, failed validations, you want to add missing information such as emails, industry coding, etc. Now, the long part of this or the part that takes the longest is for any of the vendors where you're missing data that you can't find or you are, uh, they fail validations, you want to follow up with that vendor to get the required documents so that you can revalidate them. Um, you want to collect any missing information, collect any documents that they should have on file that they don't have on file. And that follow-up process is, again, what makes this step um, take so long, which is why I say 
or my recommendation is that you do this process monthly, quarterly, semi-annually, or at the very least annually. And if you do do it annually, you do it sometime in September, October. So you have time to do step eight, following up with these vendors so that you can get responses and get these updated before you move into year end, because right after year end, comes the busy month of January where you are generating, distributing, and filing um, those uh, that activity on the 1099s and the 1042s for non-U.S. vendors. But you can imagine if you do this on a monthly basis, yes, it's more manual work. However, you won't have as much follow-up uh, at the end of the year and the fourth quarter of the year if you do this on a monthly basis or even quarterly or even semi-annually. Now, if you have questions regarding this process, I will have a webinar that will be on November 17th um, from 10 to 11 Eastern time. And I will talk about all the steps of this eight step process and have at least 15 minutes of Q&A time if you'd like to bring your questions. So I will put a link to that webinar. It'll be in the blog post and a link to the blog post will be in the show notes. So go ahead and and check that out. Sign up if you'd like more information and the opportunity to ask questions. And if you're listening to this episode after November 17th, 2021, no problem. I'll still have that same link and you can watch the on-demand recording. All right. So thanks everyone. I hope you enjoyed the 161st episode of the Putting the AP in Happy podcast, where accounts payable teams are empowered to protect the vendor master file from fraud. Don't forget to check the show notes for the links mentioned in the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing and writing a review of my podcast on the platform that you use to listen. Stay happy. Stay happy.